This morning, the last of our little mini-series of lessons uh, entitled No Wasted Years, uh, No Meaningless Days, is going to focus on love. The whole idea is that we are seeking to be the person we were meant to be. We were not meant to be a church-going person. We were not meant to be uh, just a good person. We were meant to be someone who lives in the image of God. We were created in the image of God, and then we were recreated at baptism in his spiritual image, where uh, the old has passed, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, and what is new has come. And every day is spent becoming this new person. And we spend all of our lives, from the moment we are born again in baptism to the day that God calls us home, in this process of constant renewal. There's never a time where we go into spiritual retirement or we take a vacation or even take time off uh, from being what, we're, what we ought to be in the Lord. And we're seeking in these three lessons to see what that looks like. Uh, here's what we focused on. Uh, we first looked at this great transformation from darkness to light, where God calls us as rebels to lay down our arms, to quit fighting against Him. Remember uh, Paul said in Romans, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We weren't neutral. We were fighting against God at some point. And God calls us to lay down our arms, to quit fighting, and calls us to do the exact opposite of what we maybe used to do. He says to the person in Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no longer, but instead work with his hands uh, that he might give to those uh, who might be in need, and he might take care of his own responsibilities. We looked uh, last week at the addition, where uh, Peter in 2 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1 talks about adding seven qualities to our character. Goodness, and then add to goodness knowledge, then to knowledge self-control, then self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and then the final one, is love. So seven specific character qualities that we add to our character, and it's a daily addition, compounded growth, you could call it, where every day is an opportunity to grow in these seven areas. But the last area he mentioned is love, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I simply want to call that the refinement. Uh, love is the supreme character and quality that God's looking for to be shown to others just like it's been shown to us, and that will be our focus. It's a refinement of our character, and we'll see how that is to be lived out. It's loving people God's way. So today, the refinement, loving people in God's way. We'll look closely in a few moments at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. I want to first see just in Scripture, because we already focused in song on this, uh, Ricardo highlighted this in his prayer, the love of God, simply talking about how important love is to everything we do. It's an important word, but it's a word that is greatly watered down in our culture, and the word love goes in all kinds of different directions. Uh, we talk about how we love C's candy. Uh, we all love C's candy, right? A dark chocolate especially. Um, there's no greater gift you could give me than a box of seeds candy. But we, we use all the time just talking about something we like to eat, is we love this. Oh, we love this restaurant. And it's a perfectly appropriate way to describe something we really like. But when it comes to showing the love of God to others, we probably haven't plumbed the depths of what God is looking for if we think loving a Snickers bar is the same thing as loving another person or the same thing is required. But with love in Scripture, 
It is a focus of everything with God. Everything with God centers on love. Think about well-known text, uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't just barely love the world, but He so loved the world. Uh, we find in 1 John chapter 4, I'll just read, go ahead and read this text. 1 John 4, uh, 16 and 17. John writes, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Pause here. Remember, or notice here, John wrote, And we know and rely on the love God has for us. We are stuck going nowhere without the love of God in our lives, His sacrificial love to die for our sins. Then John goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Uh, here, it simply says God is love. Even though God's anger is manifest at times, and His punishing wrath has been exercised, and He is just, here John says God embodies this idea of love. He is love, and we love one another. God's love has been sacrificial. Uh, Ricardo expressed in his prayer uh, the thoughts of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul simply says, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were running away from God, God's running towards us, literally having to tackle us or chase us down to find us and to bring him to himself. We think of the greatest commandments in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where a lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is one, to love God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then what's the second? To love your neighbor or love others as yourself. So here, God embodies love, and then he calls upon us to love each other. But it's going to take sacrifice. Uh, the love that we're going to talk about this morning um, is not for the weak-willed. It's not for the weak-minded, where you think the same love you might have for a certain dessert is the same love that God's calling for you to express to someone else. We're going to talk in just a few moments about what loving other people looks like, but uh, make no mistake about it. There are some people that are very difficult to love. Uh, we all have our own issues. We have our own baggage from our past, unresolved issues that spill out into the lives of other people we live with, we work with, that we're related to. Love sometimes requires us loving people that have struggles with mental illness. Love requires at times us loving people uh, that struggle with addictions or struggle with great degrees of selfishness and self-centeredness, where they've simply learned to, learn, learn to live a certain way, but yet we are connected to them in some way. It might be in a church context, again, a work context, a relationship, parent-child, husband-wife, boyfriend-girl, whatever it is, we're called to love people that are close to us. But those people, including ourselves, are very difficult to love at times. I have my own baggage. 
I have my own things that I've struggled with that make me at times difficult to love. But yet I know people still do in different ways because I can see it. And they're overcoming things they experience. You're going to sometimes love people that don't want to be loved. You're going to try to love at times people or be called to love people uh, that don't even love themselves, which sometimes is extremely difficult because they don't want to be loved. Because they don't feel like they're worthy of anything that is good that is shown your way. But God is still love. And the greatest commandment is to love others as yourself. And John explores the theme in 1 John how that if uh, you don't love other people, don't talk about loving God. And Paul's going to express the same thought here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Let's go ahead and look there if you're not there already. 1 Corinthians 13. Very well known text. Uh, this passage that I read and we'll read again. I read earlier in the announcement period, is uh, pretty familiar, uh, pretty familiar to non-believers. Uh, many times it will be quoted in a marriage ceremony by people that don't even profess faith in Christ. You'll, uh, you might see it in the Hobby Lobby store as a, maybe a decoration you can buy or something like that. Um, it's very popular. No one argues with it. No one says, I don't want this part of the Bible around me. Uh, people embrace it, but I, I, I'm not sure if we always fully understand what we're embracing or what we're called to do, but we'll try to see so uh, this morning. First of all, just the context of 1 Corinthians 13. There's some parts that we're really comfortable with, but then there's some parts that really seem very different and hard to understand. First of all, this section about love is written to the Corinthians, who struggled mightily with trying to live just the basic tenets of the Christian life. In the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, they were... Uh, separating themselves into different cliques based on who baptized them. I am a Cephas, I am this person, Apollos, simply based on who baptized them. They had a very competitive spirit. Um, in this chapter uh, and in uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14, three chapters were devoted to uh, their handling of what are called spiritual gifts. In the first century, God worked miracles uh, through believers, the apostles most notably, but even regular church members, as far as someone having the gift to speak another language they didn't know, but other people would know, that's called uh, speaking in tongues. There are people that were given the, uh, the gift of prophecy where God could speak through them and give a message to people. And this was all during the time that God's written word was not present. It would come much later. There was a way that God would speak and reveal his will to people. And those people could prove that God was actually speaking from them. At times they could do miracles. Uh, uh, they would have maybe a gift of knowledge about how to handle a certain situation. But instead of using those to bless each other and help each other, they were using it to show off. And in their assembly, they would run in front of the other one and try to dominate and take precedent. And Paul is trying to rein all of that in. And he talks about here in 1 Corinthians 13 about uh, prophecies they will cease uh, he'll talk about knowledge that will go away. He's not talking about all knowledge going away, but he's talking about these miraculous expressions where God would speak through a gift of knowledge or tongue speaking or prophetical knowledge. All those methods would one day end when God's perfect or completed will for, would come. So he's telling them, don't hang on to all these methods. You instead need to hang on to love. Faith, hope, and love, these will remain. But yet he focuses on love as being the supreme thing to hang on to. 
So let's reread this text, knowing kind of the setting of what he's giving, and then we'll focus on these qualities of love. Chapter 13, again, starting with verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in human or angelic tongues, that means languages, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So let's just pause here. Do you need love or not? (laughs) You can have everything. You can be the biggest giver in the church. You can be the most persecuted for Christ. But if you don't have love for other people, he says, it's nothing. It negates everything. You're not going to just sneak into heaven not having love. You won't be there at all. Because nothing matters, Paul is saying, if love is not present. He says, verse 4, here's what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, that means miraculous languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. Just pause here. He's talking about how they didn't have God's complete will like we have it today. They were getting it in different piecemeal forms. But he says one day all these piecemeal forms are going to end. Uh, He says, but when completeness comes, and I believe that's God's completed will like we have, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood. For now we see only reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Just pause here. Here he's talking about how we don't really know everything we need to know. That was in the first century, when God's will was not completed as we have it. He says, one day, all this will come together. Until now, you have all these different methods. But still, the greatest thing, he says, is love. Verse 13, but now these three remain. These are going to stick around forever, he says. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's now take a look at it. What is he calling for? Uh, With the word love, we have so many different understandings about love. We use the word in all different contexts. I remember as a little kid uh, handing out uh, to other little kids in elementary school, remember those little boxes of sweet tarts, and you'd, you'd write little messages to everybody, and then the, someone you really liked, you might write, I love you, and, and things like that. We use the word all the time. It's a beautiful word. But in the Christian context, it's a very deep word that calls on a lot from God's people. It is difficult to show. It's difficult just to do it. And sometimes those you're trying to show love to make it even more difficult, as I said earlier. But I find no exemption passage or verse that says, well, you don't have to do it in this context, or you don't have to do it there. What we're going to find this morning is loving others will take more than a feeling. 
In fact, God blesses us by telling us, you don't have to feel like doing it. You don't have to wait till you feel like showing this to some other person to show it. A lot of people say, well, I'll be a hypocrite if I do this. No, no, God said, don't try that. God will tell us just to do it. And that's exactly what God did for us. He's asking us to show to others the love that He showed to us. And what did people do to His Son in the very moment that His Son was giving His life? They spat on Him. They ridiculed Him. They mocked Him as Hail King of the Jews. And then they killed Him in front of His own mother, I thought, this week. But yet Christ was giving His life for them and the Father had to see it all. There's not one difficult thing we're called to do that God hasn't already done with people that have shown Him the worst. So as we walk through these things, we kind of explain these love qualities. They're going to call upon us to do some difficult things. But God says, yes, they're difficult. But it's the only way to go, and we'll end talking about why. Again, we culturally tend to think of feelings such as being attracted to someone. Oh, I love them. Feeling good about someone or something. Oh, I love that feeling. But loving biblically involves doing even if you don't desire to do it. And if you don't have it, that is love, nothing else matters. So let's just walk right into them. It's a list, if you will. If you like a list, this is a scripture that you can grab onto. Paul put the words out here. They were originally put in a Greek context, a Greek word, but these are translated into English. But the word love here, when we're called on to love, is one of four Greek words. Maybe you've heard lessons on this before. In the Greek language, there are four words for love, because love was a complicated word even 2,000 years ago. There's the word phileo, which is a friendship-type love. If you've been to Philadelphia, it's a city of what? The city of brotherly love. Right, Phila is phileo. That was a Greek word. Just talk about brother love, just friendship type love. There was the word storge, which is used once or twice in the New Testament, which meant family love. Love for someone simply because they're related to you. Storge. The third word was eros, the word erotic love. It does not appear in the New Testament. It was another Greek word, a sexual type of love. But then the fourth word was, do you guys already know already from previous lessons? It starts with an A. Ah, yes, yes. Agape love. Yes, agape love. I heard it in many of it. It was right on the tip of your tongue. Agape love. It was a sacrificial kind of love. It was a love that God showed for us and continues to show for us. Where you give of something of yourself to love someone that may not even be looking for it, probably doesn't deserve it, won't appreciate it, but yet you give it anyway. That's what God did for us. He calls upon us to do it ourselves. Well, let's just go through First of all, love is patient. What does that mean? It means if you're patient, you're able to endure difficult situations with people. And endure difficult people. Difficult people and their situations. And number one, that's family. We're stuck with them. We're biologically, uh, biologically connected. Or we've committed to them in a relationship, most notably marriage. Sometimes we can handle work people all right, because at 5 o'clock we walk away. 
family, they're with us 24-7. We get to see all their rough edges, they see all of ours. We see all their annoying habits, they see all of ours. They have their baggage, we have ours. They have the way their parents brought them up, we have ours. Family is the most challenging relationship to show love. Even though it should be the easiest, and on paper it is. But it's the most challenging because a lot of times after a full day's work, you don't want to have to go home and be nice. Like you've been from 8 to 5. And you come home to other people that have been doing things all day that make them a little grouchy, a little irritable, and all the stuff comes out that always bugs you. That if you're patient, you're able to endure that out of love simply because God calls you to. With coworkers that you have to sit next to all day, that have their habits, have their ways of interacting with others, with neighbors you just happen to buy a parcel of property next to, with classmates that you were put on a seating chart next to, and you simply have to deal with that, patience is called for. As I talked about last week, situations like driving, shopping, where you have to interact with other people, you're going to have to be patient. That doesn't mean you tolerate abuse. That doesn't mean you let go criminal behavior. The law has ways of dealing with people that hurt you or abuse you, and that's a whole other matter. Those things need to be taken care of. But with someone that just irritates you, or someone that does the same thing over and over again, or, or someone that just is in your space, and they're not going to leave your space. Being patient with them and enduring that, and not losing it yourself, is what God is looking for. Because that's what he's dealing with with us. We have our good days and our bad days. We have our days where we seek him out in prayer and do the right thing. There's other days where we're, our heart is far from him. But yet he patiently deals with us. He does not abandon us. He does not give up on us. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't lose it with us. His heart's broken and he hurts. At times we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But God is still there with us patiently enduring a lot from his children. And he calls upon us to do the same with others. Number two, love is kind. When I put this together, I just started writing down things that were part of the word and the concept. With kindness, it's ability to think, speak, and act in a way that blesses others rather than hurts them. Again, kindness is the ability to think, speak, and act in a way that blesses others rather than hurts them. Some people are really good with caustic comments. They're really good criticizing. It's people that have a critical spirit where they, they can find fault with everything and everyone. Kindness shows just the opposite. Uh, kindness does not try to hurt others, whether it be directly in front of them or hurt them by talking behind their back, where they can't defend themselves or explain themselves. If you're kind, it means you don't ignore others. You can hurt people at times, not just with your words, but you can hurt them by shunning them, <laughs> or just turning your head the other way when they sure could use a word of encouragement. Uh, if you're kind, I can't imagine how you would want to give the silent treatment to somebody. 
And the silent treatment is the deliberate act of hostility. It's just masked in passive behaviors where someone won't talk to someone who's in the same room with them, and they're doing it deliberately. Not for a timeout, not just to compose themselves, but they're trying to hurt someone by not talking to them, trying to hurt them emotionally. Because they think, well, if I'm just not hitting them in the face, it's okay. A kind person doesn't give the silent treatment. And if they recognize they're doing it, they change real quick. A kind person would rather say nothing than say something hurtful. Remember watching the Disney show Bambi? Remember the wise words of Thumper? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But that doesn't mean the silent treatment. Just if you don't know what to say, just say, I need to walk away right now. Just let me leave the room and we'll talk again kind of once I get it together. Instead of saying, I'm going to let loose now everything I've been wanting to say for weeks and months. One thing I learned in communication classes in college, you can never take words back. You can say you're sorry. You can apologize a thousand times. But you can never take those words back once they hit the air. And a kind person knows that. And they exercise a degree of discipline to make sure that what they do say is helpful. It may not always be flowery, but it can be helpful. Because they recognize they don't want to worsen a relationship that's already hurting. Being kind doesn't mean you have to be right, or proven right, or have the last word. Many times people, it's being right all the time where they have to make sure they get their word in at the end. A kind person doesn't think like that. A kind person thinks more broadly. Number three, does not envy. Envy is resenting what someone else has, whether it be possessions or maybe people in their lives, uh, refusing to resent others uh, for things you wish you had got earlier in life, whether it be a relationship, or something nice, or a nice place to live. Uh, someone who refuses to envy says, yeah, I wish I had that, but I'm not going to dwell on that. And I'm not going to harbor bad thoughts about someone that has something I wish I had or received. Someone who refuses to envy does not constantly compare themselves to other people and then resent what those other people have. You simply don't envy. You, you're content with what you have. You can better yourself. You can develop yourself. And you can try to emulate those things that other people have. And, but you don't constantly walk around resenting what other people have and then letting that hurt you. Number four, love does not boast. Uh, boast could be replaced by the word brag. Uh, we don't use the word boast a whole lot these days, but... Basically, if you refuse to boast, you refuse to engage in self-promotion. Where you're always talking about what you've done, or what you've said, and how you've taken control. You, it's not always about you. Uh, you don't exaggerate in stories. You don't make things up that you didn't do. Or you don't try to make bigger things you did do. Simply to show you're better than others, or... 
that you had a bigger life experience, something like that. Even though you've had great things happen, you don't make it a point to tell others those things all the time. You simply don't boast. Uh, you also don't engage in what could be called humble brags. Uh, a humble brag today is where someone's bragging, but they're being real subtle about it. It might sound something like this, well, I was volunteering at the nursing home this week and I found a small bug and uh, something like that where they're throwing in something wonderful they've done that makes them look good but that's really the only reason why they're telling you something is they want to look good. That's a humble brag. People do that on social media a lot. They make sure they're captured in pictures where they're doing something uh, and they want the picture just for that reason so other people can see it, what they're doing. Uh, someone that doesn't boast they don't want to take pictures just for how others will see it. Uh, love is not proud. If you're not proud, you're not too big to admit mistakes. You'll say something like, my bad, that's on me. Uh, you're not too big to admit wrongs. <clears throat> and you're especially not too big to admit sin. You confess sin to God, but you also confess sin that you might have committed against someone else. And you do so sooner rather than later. Uh, if you're not proud, you don't demand control over every situation. You don't demand power so that you're always seen as relevant. You're simply content with where you're at. Next, love does not dishonor others. It does not dishonor others. It means you do not embarrass others with your words even though you can. You don't take advantage of social situations where someone might not say anything back to you or do anything to be critical of someone. We've all been in those situations where most notably with husbands and wives where they'll make digs at each other because they know other people standing there and they kind of get away with it. You don't do that. You don't dishonor others. <clears throat> you don't make jokes at someone else's expense where you're kind of making fun of someone but you're doing it in a context of humor. You're not always criticizing in a way that embarrasses other people or puts them down. You don't put people down in front of others and you don't put them down out of their sight. It's just not who you are if you love. Again, Paul says, you do not dishonor others. You don't use social media as a way of criticizing people. Students call that trolling, where you're just going all around saying negative things because no one knows who you are. Uh, you're not easily angered if you love, Paul says. Paul elsewhere said, be angry but do not sin. Anger is a natural emotion. There's things we ought to be angry at. But what Paul says here is you're not easily angered, which means you're not a hothead. <laughs> means you're not a powder keg waiting to explode where everyone's walking on tiptoes around you, afraid that you're just going to boom. It means you're not known for having a short fuse. You ever worked with someone, oh, they got a short fuse. Don't, don't say that. Everyone's just fearful of how someone might react. A person that's not easily angered does not use anger as a tool to hurt. Some people with anger... Intense anger, they know what they're doing with their anger. They will let it be used in a quick way to shut people down or to hurt people. 
They'll try to intimidate with their anger or manipulate with that. Someone who loves others as God loves us doesn't do that. Doesn't always try to use their anger as a weapon. Next, Paul says, keeps no record of wrongs. Keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, The person that loves in this way knows to let go of little things that need to be let go of. I've heard more than once someone says the key to successful marriage is having a short memory. Your spouse is going to do all kinds of things. (laughs) In the moment, makes you think you need to go find another place to live. But three days later, you're going to forget what that was all about. (laughs) What was I angry at? Uh, people that love each other don't keep a, a collection of wrongdoings. Like the old stamp collecting, and then you go turn those stamps in and get a prize. The person that loves doesn't collect all these wrongs and then let loose in some public setting about all the things someone's done to hurt them four years ago or five years ago and since. You just don't do that. If you say you forgive, you forgive. Or if you just decide I'm going to let that go, you let it go. You don't Kind of let it go, but save it for later. You let go of the big things that you need to let go of because you said you forgave someone for that. Again, it could be small things or big things. You don't save up anything to cash them in later. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Next, God, uh, love does not delight in evil. Does not delight in evil. That means you don't enjoy seeing someone fall. If you love someone, it hurts you when you see them do something wrong. And you don't say, I knew it, or I told you so, or I knew that would happen. You don't delight in seeing something bad happen to someone else, whether them be embarrassed or somehow even make their own mistake or commit a sin. You don't ever think, well, I knew that was going to happen. Uh, You don't look for or like bad news in others. You don't like the tabloid mentality of, oh, what did they do? You don't like gossip. You don't like slander. You don't like things that clearly are maligning someone. You don't like finding hypocrisy in others, even though it will be easy to find. You simply don't delight in evil. You don't delight in wrong things. Rejoices in the truth. If you rejoice in the truth, it means you like, first of all, factual things. You don't like hearing innuendo. You don't like hearing maybes or did you hear this or that. You, want, you just want to know what's true. But even then, you relish more good news than bad news. Paul's not saying here you, you don't live in reality and you just pretend like everything's just fine. But you prefer to hear good news and if someone's just sharing a bunch of bad stuff, you know when to maybe leave the conversation. Or you know when to say maybe we should talk about something else. Protects. Paul says love protects. If you love someone, you protect them both physically and emotionally. Especially if you're in a relationship with someone, someone hitting them, hurting them, and some act of anger is something you simply do not do. But also you don't hurt people emotionally. That old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, is not true. Words can hurt deeper than a fist at times. 
take no pride in you've never hit anybody, but yet you verbally let loose on people all the time. Words can hurt people to the core of who they are. And as a high school teacher, I meet with students all the time who have been berated by their parents, told they're worth nothing, told they're a loser by the people that are supposed to love them. And they never recover from that. If you protect, uh, you defend others when they're attacked. I don't know if that's true, what you're saying. I don't, I don't know. Or if you're not sure, say, well, let's just talk about something else. That's a protection when someone's trying to tell you a bunch of bad stuff about somebody. Say, let's talk about some. Let's switch subjects here. I'm just not comfortable continuing to talk about this. You do that. That's a protective measure when you're invited to talk about bad things about people. You protect. Love trust. Love trust. That means you put confidence in other people. Uh, you provide people opportunities to succeed. Uh, you don't use people's past failures against them. That doesn't mean you just let them do anything they want despite what's happened in the past, but you don't hold stuff against a person. Well, I remember when you, and I don't know if I want to let you, and oh, remember when you didn't use that $5 I gave you 20 years ago, you didn't use it right. I don't, you don't do that. You, you trust, and you give a person a chance to prove themselves again, that they can do things, that they've learned their lesson perhaps, and you trust. You don't hang things over a person's head all their life. Well, I, well, remember though, remember what you said? And they know. You don't haunt people with their past, just like God does not haunt us with our past. Three more. Love hopes. Love hopes. Love looks for and seeks the best outcome in all situations. Instead of walking around and saying, oh, that's going to mess up, that's not going to work, you say, hey, Let's give it a shot. I think that might work. I think that's going to work out the best if we both work together and we try to figure this out. I'm hopeful that we can have a better relationship in the future. That's the way you think. Not that, oh, we tried that before. Oh, I've done that. That never worked. Instead of walking around with a miserable cloud overhead, you have a vision of hope. That doesn't mean you pretend there's not problems, but with people, you've got to have some degree of hope that they can be better just like you want to be better. You extend that to someone who needs it, just like we need it at times with ourselves. If you hope, that means a person is not defined by their past. And you know that. We're all a story that's always continually being written. I don't want what I did years ago defining who I am now. But if you hope, that means you're always seeing a person right now and forward, what they can be. And that's how our Heavenly Father sees us. He doesn't always look at humanity like they looked at the cross spitting on his son. He saw into the future what his people could be like. He recognizes, if you, you hope, you recognize that the rest of a person's life is yet to be told. And you can be a positive part of that. Perseveres. Love perseveres. It doesn't give up on others when you're tempted to quit. You say, I'm going to hang in there with this. When you're tempted, just say, I'm done. That doesn't mean you tolerate abuse or, again, tolerate someone doing something illegal to you or otherwise doing something wrong. That's not what Paul is saying here. The temptation is when our emotions are heightened and are frustrated and we're angry, just say, I'm done. I'm out of here. You don't do that. You persevere. 
You accept the reality of the present, but you allow for future change. And if there's a cooling off period needed, you do that because you persevere. Love in perseverance doesn't let emotions of the moment define future decisions. If love perseveres, it doesn't let emotions of the moment, and that's our hardest thing because we feel awful, but it doesn't let the emotions of the moment determine future decisions. And finally, Paul says, love never fails. What does that mean? First of all, love is always relevant. There's never a time where love just doesn't mean anything anymore because we're doing fine without it. It's always relevant. Love is always important. God is love. If God is love, it's always important. Love is always the key to unlocking change with people. Understand that. You can't force someone to change. Uh, bribery, that will fail. Manipulation of someone trying to manipulate your way, that will fail. Trying anger to get people to change, that, that will fail miserably every time. You'll live a very lonely life. But if you love, it will not fail. It'll always work. Eventually. Why? First of all, you know you did the right thing. These are our concluding thoughts. When you love in this way, regardless of how someone else reacts, you will always know you did the right thing. There's few things worse than being haunted by what you didn't do that you knew you should have, or what you did do that was not loving. It's hard to get out of those prisons. You'll at least know you did the right thing. You won't live with regret, nightmares, guilt, shame. And also, love gets people's attention. Even when they're resisting you, even when they're pushing back and not doing anything, you're getting their attention. Paul described it in Romans 13, you're heaping coals of fire on their head. They feel guilty about what they're doing if they're being loved back. So you're getting their attention. That's, again, why Paul says it never fails. And it's your best shot at someone else's behavior. They still have to change. But you're doing what you should do. And usually when they see you doing your part, they will come closer to doing their part. Again, none of this is easy. But Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. None of these are based on feelings. None of these are based on someone else showing you love first. It's simply loving like our Heavenly Fathers loved us in very specific ways that all mirror how He's shown love to us. Let's take it on. Take on the challenge. Don't think you're going to get all this down in a week. This is a lifetime of work. You're going to be tested in all different situations, but don't give up on it. I've got my burdens to bear here, some that I didn't even like talking about, because I was talking to myself. My own struggles. But we can't give up on them.